Welcome to episode three of Behind the Business podcast with me, Danny Champion, podcast about the music industry, talking to those within it. Uh, this week is a chat with Sarah Osborne of the Incorporated Society of Musicians. Uh, my background with Sarah actually dates back to when she was on the MPA panel for the Richard Toman Scholarship but mainly from her time at the Music Publishers Association. Sarah joined the Incorporated Society of Musicians in May 2018 as the Head of Services and Operations. As mentioned, she's the former CEO of the Music Publishers Association. ISM themselves are a UK professional body for musicians and nationally recognised subject association for music, supporting nearly 9,000 members. One of the reasons why I wanted to get Sarah on was due to the number of upcoming emerging musicians that I am in contact with. I didn't know a lot about the Incorporated Society of Musicians, so it was great to have Sarah on, talking about her own career trajectory, how she got to where she is today, her, her motivations and everything that she does, but also it was really, really useful to find out more about ISM and how important they are to the wider industry. So, for those musicians out there, do pay attention to this one. At the end, there'll be some contact details and all that sort of stuff, but in the meantime, I'll shut up and I'll let you listen to my chats with Sarah. Cheers. ISM now? So I joined at the beginning of May, so coming up to three months. Wow, so it's really, really new. Really new, yeah. Yeah. How's it gone so far? So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> I should say that as my boss is going to be listening. <laughs> but no, it's, ISM is a really interesting, it's a really interesting organisation. You know, it's a growing organisation. It's one that is not afraid to shout for what it believes in. And that mm -hmm. makes it a really interesting place to work. Yeah. And alongside that, you know, it's a great team and yeah, yeah. growing membership. So How yeah, old is the fun. business? Has it so been going for that long? It's been going a very long time. Right. So it's been going um, about 130 years. Okay. So it's, it, there's a lot of history to it. And it was, it was founded by a group of radicals up in Manchester who really felt that there needed to be an organisation who were who were fighting to sort of protect the interests of artists and musicians mm -hmm. all the way back then. And that, that sort of ethos has sort of it has carried through to the work that we're doing today. So okay. we have a really big um, sort of lobbying and public affairs arm and we do lots of, mm -hmm. sort of campaigns to sort of carry on that fighting spirit. For the uninitiated, mm. me included, uh, <laughs> the Incorporated Society of Musicians is not associated with the Musicians' Union. It's not, no. So how does it work in that regard? Do you do different things? Is it kind of in tandem with? 
kind yeah. of kind of teach me how it all Teaches how it all <laughs> the works. Musical landscape, yeah, yeah, please really. do. So, so we're a professional association, mm-hmm. whereas the MU is a trade union. Mm-hmm. So there are, first of all, there are differences in our structure and just the way that we're governed. You know, kind of the MU has all their trade union things that they have to abide by. Yep. Um, we have our council, um, and you know, undoubtedly there is an element of overlap in terms of the services that we offer. You know, we offer legal support. The MU offers legal support. But I think it's a question for musicians of, of, of really thinking about, well, kind of what is it that you want your membership association to do? And also really, you know, our, our remit, we're very clear that our remit extends beyond our members. So we are there for the profession as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so that means that, as I say, kind of our, our campaigning work takes us in all sorts of directions. Um, and it just brings a different slant to the work that we do. Okay. So what's some of the things that you've been involved with since, so, you, since you joined the team? So, I, so I've joined as Head of Services and Operations. Mm-hmm. So um, primarily I'm looking at sort of the, the offer for members. So once, once people are, have joined us as members, then what, what do we need to do to help support them in their professional career? Right, and that's really that's that's the the core of the of of my role. So yes, it's providing all the sort of boring nitty gritty stuff that you actually need to be a professional musician. So lots of stuff around insurance, tax, mm-hmm. legal support, but then also looking at how we can support members in terms of you know where do you where do you find work? You know, kind of how do you get your first gig? Um, lots of professional development you know how do you build a website how do you promote yourself in what is a very competitive market so are there parameters for those who would want to sign up to you yeah so so as a yeah so as as a professional association um we have sort of entry criteria as it were so Mm -hmm. most people join us because they've done some form of of um they've got some form of musical qualification. So they could have gone to BIM, to ACM, they could have gone to a conservatoire, yep. a university, so they've got some form of professional qualification. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, we've got other routes for entry, so people can, if you're basically if you're working in the industry and can demonstrate that to us by either having um, a couple of referees sort of support your application, or if you can show us that you've got a recording contract, you've got a publishing contract, you've been working with professional musicians mm-hmm. then then there were roots into entry that way okay and the bulk of your membership group are in the session musician kind of the jobbing musician world yeah or are they I'd say in kind the of artist songwriter, songwriter that sort of stuff it's really interesting mm. our, our membership is really changing okay um so we were looking at this the other week actually and sort of the vast majority of our members joined us within the last sort of three, three years or so. I was going to say, it's not a business that for someone who has been in bands or in and around music industry for getting close to 20 years, it was never one that just suddenly appeared. When yeah. I was in bands at, at uni yeah. or in sixth form, it was... Right, we better get we better sign up to the musicians' union yeah. and things like that. 
Yes. So it's interesting for you to say that actually yeah, a, a big number has kind of yeah, jumped in the last couple yeah, of years. Absolutely. And I mean, we've, we've actively gone out and, you know, it's been a real, um, a real move for us to try and just let people know that we are here for all musicians. And when you look at our membership, there's a real range of people. So there's there's just as many um, sort of performers and session musicians as there are um composers and songwriters and we've also got a lot of music educators so it could be community musicians music teachers right so we cover a whole range of you know sort of the whole profession really is sort of can be can be members of mm -hmm. ism the membership's becoming younger mm -hmm. which is really interesting but and so overall now our, our membership is quite evenly spread in terms of sort of age brackets um, so the membership is, is really changing and I think the, it's just a reflection of the current sort of the current market, you know, the kind of the climate in which we're operating, in which musicians are trying to make a living. And I'd say kind of there's no there's no typical ISM member, but a lot of them have portfolio careers and so they could well be playing in a session you know, one afternoon mm -hmm. and then the next morning they're teaching and, you know, they, it, it is the, just a classic portfolio career. And this, you guys are here to assist them yeah. with pretty much everything across the board That's directly, as well as all the various other things that you do, like some of the questions, some of the surveys and reports yes. that I was perusing yes. uh, before coming Absolutely. up here and all that sort of stuff. So, you mentioned that there that it's becoming younger mm. and that it may be a sign of the kind of the climate in music so from your perspective personally as well as from the perspective on a professional level what do you think the climate is like at the moment for especially those at the beginning of the yeah. journey i think it's tough out there yeah? i think i think in a way, there are more opportunities than there have ever been. You know, when you think about how music, how people access music, and the mm -hmm. fact that you know anyone can upload something onto YouTube or onto SoundCloud. So, in some senses, you know, the opportunities have never been greater. But at the same time, that makes it much harder for you to cut through all of that and to get yourself known mm -hmm. and to establish yourself. And I think the the other change has been around just the perceptions of um of musicians and artists and that there's almost an expectation now that they won't necessarily be taken on by a label or a publisher and that actually there's much more of a sort of uh, an acceptance or even a desire to have that sort of diy element and that actually as a as an artist you can build your team around you without you, having to go directly or sort of rely on the label in the way that you used to do yeah, yeah. so does does i think get directly involved in that side of things the whole you know if an artist if a performer is wanting to effectively go it alone do it themselves is that what you guys are kind of set up to to assist with to help out with. in part yeah i mean we 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 have a team of in-house lawyers um and so they are there and the a large part of what they do is advising members on sort of how they how they structure themselves so kind of do they want to set up a company do they want to remain self-employed how they go about actually sort of building their building their team around them so we do a lot of 
um, reviewing of contracts. So if someone is approached for management, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, a member can send the contract through to us and we can talk it through with them and we can advise them not only on the terms of the contract, but also kind of, is this right for you at this stage in your career? And it's kind of, it's that wider, it's that wider piece of support around mm-hmm. helping people just really understand what it is, what it is that they're trying to achieve and is sort of the, the proposition that's in front of them, is that going to help them achieve their aims? What's the number one inquiry that you guys get? Got any idea about what's the... Is it all about contracts and stuff like that? Yeah, or it's all about contracts. And I would different? say, I, I mean, maybe because it's just the time of year where... So at the moment, because it's the end of the school year, lots and lots of our um, music teacher members and sort of instrumental teachers, um, they are being approached about changes to terms and conditions of their contracts. So, for example, there's a lot of stuff around moving, trying to move music teachers onto zero hour contracts or where previously they might have been employed by a school or by a music so you, service or a music hub they're now looking at changing that so how does that work from your perspective because someone a music teacher for a primary or a secondary school teacher in theory comes under your remit if they are signed up to you but they would also come under i would assume some form of teachers union yes. as yeah. well and so there's a bit of juggling of of perspectives going on in there you mentioned that if someone's trying to change a contract you know who are you to 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 kind of force the issue to say that well all the music teachers (laughs) need to be centrally contracted everybody else we don't care about yeah i'd say it it relates more to the to say like the visiting instrumental teachers right so those that are coming in you know, two days a week to teach guitar or drums or anything like that, sort of, there's no, across the country, there are all sorts of different models, so it's not a question of kind of everyone's being treated in the same way, but Mm -hmm. we've just noticed a trend that previously, where some of those teachers were employed directly by the school, the school are now saying, actually, we want to change your contracts, we want you to become self-employed. And that creates a whole host of issues that um, that we just try to support our members on. Because for, okay. some, for some people, it could be the right thing. For others, it's definitely not the right thing. And that's where it comes back to that sort of individual relationship with our member and looking at, the, at what's being proposed in the context of their situation. And is that something that's, that's right or wrong for them? Mm-hmm. And advising them accordingly. Okay. How did you get into this mad business of the music (laughs) industry? So, university degree, music degree? Music degree at Goldsmiths. Yep. So, down in South East London. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a very soft spot for New Cross and surrounding area. Um, 
So yeah, I did a, I did a uh, like just a, a kind of regular music degree. Where Were you a performer? Were you a writer? I was. I was yeah, primarily a performer. So I play saxophone, and mm-hmm. so I loved Goldsmith because it was so focused on contemporary music and what's happening now. You know, there wasn't an awful lot of sort of Mozart and Beethoven and anything like that. It was okay. all very much focused on sort of contemporary music. Um, and it was a it was a, a course where you did a bit of history, a bit of harmony. So I kind of focused on performance, mm-hmm. um, and I just I had a whale of a time. I mm-hmm. absolutely loved being at Goldsmiths. I think it's a really interesting department. It, you know, it's a really creative place. From a young age, was it was it just music? Was yes. music the focus? You just needed to play music or be yeah. around music and that sort of stuff. Yeah, musical family. Yeah, so amateur music, you know, kind of parents played and sung in choirs and kind of played locally, but um, yeah, for me there was no question, it was just, it was like, well I don't know what else to do, I'm no good at anything else, so it kind of, sort of, it had to be music. But, and it was was very much a, I'm going to be a musician. Yeah, did you I, really I have any idea what the music no, business the, the, was? The, so like the industry and business just didn't come into it at all. Yeah. But I think that's more because of the limited careers advice that you get at school. It's like as soon as you say music, you're either funneled into well, you're going to you know perform, you know, be a performer of some kind, or be a music teacher, mm-hmm. or maybe sort of music therapy. That was the other one that was sort of floating Even to me. When was this? What are we talking? Oh, daddy. To reveal my age, but if we said <laughs> very loosely, the mid nineties. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, it's it's in, just it's interesting that music therapy was even something back in the mid to late nineties yeah. that was kind of the secondary school careers advice. Yeah. Kind of associated yeah. with music because I only really re- remember that from maybe the mid two thousands as being kind of a thing that suddenly became a bit more in vogue. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it was funny looking back on it now. Now that you know, I've worked in the mm-hmm. industry for a long time, when you realise the range of careers on offer, you you know, you look back and you just think the advice we received was total pants. You know, I mean, it was just <laughs> like, what were they playing at? But, you know, at the time, that's kind of you know, if that's what you go with. But I, I guess from that perspective, a careers advisor can only have so much information. Yeah. I will, you know, bow down to the, the, the one careers advisor that can talk encyclopedically <laughs> about, about everything and all that sort sun. of stuff. Yeah. So what, does a, what did a, a music degree at Goldsmiths entail? What were you doing there? What did I do? So, I mean, there were, there were very few sort of contact teaching hours. You know, it was, a, it was really the type of course where they made you question and think about things and then you would spend your time kind of going off and researching and there was a sort of creativity was really encouraged so all the time you know we were forming little sort of performing groups for a project and so you know there was academic work in terms of having to write essays and all the rest of it but a large <coughs> part of it a large part of it was really was sort of the the practical side of music making right so yeah, so at least probably half of my time was spent performing, performing and writing. Was like, it was great, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. And then yeah, and then the other half was really kind of history, history, harmony, 
Okay. And the more sort of academic side of music, right. really. Which bit did you... I guess it was the performing and the writing side of things that you was really struck yeah, by and all that absolutely. sort of stuff. Yeah. When was the last time you picked your, up your saxophone? Oh, do you know, I'm ashamed to say about probably 12 years ago now. Oh, blimey. Yeah. Something to do this weekend. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I did, but you know, it got to the point when I, when I moved into the world of work mm-hmm. and you, I was just, I was out at so many concerts and gigs and just hearing professional musicians around you all the time. It got to the point where you'd go home and play and you'd just be like, I, you know, I'm just, I'm so far down, you know, kind of, I've just it's, got so little ability compared to these people. It's just too depressing to play. It's so the standard answer. I've heard it so many times. I love performing. I love being in a band. And then I realised how much better <laughs> other, other people, people were. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The, uh, you know, the, the classic, uh, classic Homer Simpson line, which is basically... There's no point in trying because there's always someone who's going to be better than you, <laughs> yeah. and that's slightly what sort of that's a nice glass came to way of looking <laughs> came at to mind um, when thinking about yeah my performing career. So yeah, so I've retired gracefully from performing. <laughs> nice. So next up was music publishing. Yeah. You entered the, the wide world of music publishing I via did. Faber Music yes. and then Shot Music. That's right. So talk to me a little bit about your experiences as part of a publisher. Two fairly well-known, sought-after, yeah. well-established uh, yeah. publishers, more traditional publishers than yeah. more contemporary publishers. So what yeah. did you do there? How did you find it? What did you learn, etc., yeah. etc.? I mean... I have to say, you know, I didn't, there was no great career ambition to be a music publisher. No, I guess it is, it's kind of the, (laughs) it is slightly the classic story that you graduate and don't really know what you're going to do. And in the, you know, uh, in in the late 90s, uh, you know, kind of, you were scouring the Guardian and, you know, that was where all the jobs were, you know, kind of, there wasn't much of an online world. I didn't get into a university course because, well, I believe anyway, because I answered a que- the question of, can you tell me what publishing is, with a, I'm sorry, I'm not confident enough in telling you what publishing is. Really? I then ended up working in it for 15 years, and I now teach it. <laughs> Just goes so, to shame, you know, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so it was purely by accident rather than by design. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, Faber were advertising for kind of just an assistant to one of their directors and I thought you know like the look of that so you know you just put in your you put in your application Mm -hmm. and in fact I didn't actually get the job I came I got down to like the last three but in the end they appointed somebody who had who who had a bit more experience than me so but it was the only job interview where I really enjoyed the interview and like it really piqued my interest in publishing and so when, uh, you know, when they wrote to me and said, you know, very sorry, you haven't got the job, you know, I wrote back because I very genuinely, I was like, you know, it's no problem, you know, kind of, I really enjoyed meeting you, I really enjoyed finding out about Faber and, you know, it was, and, 
and then out of the blue so in the meantime I then I was then just doing temp work for the local water company and you know you just as a graduate you've just got to make ends meet mm -hmm. so I was just doing various bits of temp work and then it was I remember it clear as day it was the 5th of January 2000 so you know we just had the millennium mm -hmm. and I'd got a bit down so I was like Planes oh. hadn't fallen from the sky. Well, yeah, Computers hadn't exploded. <laughs> you know, kind of the world. The world was still <laughs> in one piece, just about. And but I was there thinking, you know, God, you know, it's the start of a new, you know, new millennium. Here am I, an unemployed music graduate. You know, kind of what am I going to do and all this. And then out of the blue, I got this phone call from Sally Cavender, basically saying, "Are you still looking for work?" The the lady that we appointed you know, has gone off and got herself another job, you know. Basically, can you, st you know, there's a job going. If you want it, you can start tomorrow. Cool. So, needless to say, I said yes. Definitely, yeah. And so I had a really happy um, three and a half years at Faber. And I, I really feel like that was my sort of apprenticeship in music publishing. Because mm -hmm. Faber are quite a small company. You know, they were only founded 40 years ago, which... In classical music publishing terms is you know is is very recent when yep. you're dealing with companies that have been going for sort of 200 years you know 40 yep. years is a sort of a babe in arms really mm -hmm. so i just i i really tried to seize the opportunity of working alongside one of the directors of the company and she was brilliant at just teaching me the craft of publishing and what it means to be a publisher and the role of a publisher when working alongside, in Faber's uh, context, classical composers and the support that you need. So you were so Faber at the time was very much contemporary classical. Yes, yeah. So um, it it their their big composers were uh, Thomas Adders and George Benjamin, Julian Anderson, and Oliver Nusson. So you were, so you were still dealing with composers who were. Oh, yeah, they were all living. Alive. <laughs> And, and, if, and, and even if they yeah. weren't, you're not, you know, it's not ridiculous stuff from, from way back when and all that no, sort of exactly. stuff. No, exactly. And and it's really exciting, you know, so they these are the guys who are writing orchestral works, they're writing operas, they're writing string quartets, mm -hmm. and it's it's really exciting. And I think just because of the, the intricacy of the music that they're writing, and when you hear it, you just think, how on earth do they have this all going on in their head? And somehow they've got this all going on in their head and they've got to get it out of their head and down onto paper. And then the publisher's job is to then kind of take that score and present it in such a way that it then translates to the performers that they then can interpret and understand what the composer had going on in his head. So it's this weird sort of um, circular um, process. Yeah. Um, and you just and and that it's sort of through that that I really got what the point of a publisher was, okay. And how you're the intermediary, and how you, how your role is to help fulfil a, a composer's creative ambitions. Was it you? Meant, you mentioned when you were at Goldsmiths, it was very contemporary, mm. and then you suddenly were being thrust into working with classical composers mm. and opera composers mm. and things like that. Did you have any formal background or any interest in that sort of yeah. music yourself? Yeah, so kind of, so I guess kind of at, at Goldsmiths, my, my time was spent primarily between that sort of 
it was kind of it was contemporary on both the sort of because I played saxophone kind of the contemporary side was probably more jazz and funk and that sort of side but equally kind of it was as much about contemporary classical music particularly on the um sort of on the history side right and quite a lot of the the sort of the composition side I kind of tended to veer towards contemporary style rather than songwriting okay so yeah so so through uni it would kind of I'd sort of built up a background in that area how is class contemporary classical music these days or since your kind of entry into it back in the early noughties is it something that because it for those of you for those of those who aren't necessarily initiated in it it's a huge area of the music yeah. industry that no one ever it's knows just about because <laughs> it's, it just kind of carries on to, in its own yeah, little exactly. its own little so, world i mean and and is it is it that different to the world of kind of pop mainstream radio? Does it, it take something a little bit different to work with a composer that does classical? Is there something about classical composers that's different yeah. to those who, who write pop songs? I would say there's not as much difference as perhaps people think. I mean, on a, on a practical level, the the difference comes in that classical music is not attached to one performer. So for a classical composer, and it starts with live, mm -hmm. so for a classical composer, they will write a piece of music, it will normally have been commissioned by, you know, for this, for this example, say an orchestra, but then that piece is not... Uh, that piece can be performed by any orchestra. You know, once the once the first performance has been given, any orchestra in the world can then go and play that piece of music. So the A and R process, essentially, yeah, yeah. you kind of you do multiple times because all the time as a publisher, you're trying to place that piece of music with a new set of performers. You mentioned commissioned by. Mm. So it's not really like pop music whereby a composer, a composer just, feels just feels the urge, the urge to, to, to write an album and stuff like that it's actually yeah. a group a, a setup a performing setup will go to a composer and say we would like something of yours please yeah it's much a the same bit, way a piece a of, of art both. maybe would be yeah you know a, absolutely a painting or something like that absolutely i mean i'd say it works both ways in that quite often you know a composer would phone me up and say sarah you know i've just I've got to write a string quartet. 99% of the time, I have to say, composers want to write operas. Like, okay. You know, they, they, you know, they think big. Is that the, zen big. the zenith? That's the zenith, absolutely. Um, and so then part of, part of what you would do is then go out and think, okay, well, how can we, you know, who can we talk to that would be a good match? And so a lot of what you're doing is that kind of partnerships and putting people together mm -hmm. and talking to composers and talking to performers and saying hey why don't you get together and see if you could work together on a project mm -hmm. so yeah so sometimes it was literally the performers would come to you and say we really want to commission George Benjamin to write an orchestral piece of music and at other times it was me going out and actually finding an opportunity for the composer with the performers. Were you doing much film work? Bits and pieces, yeah. So I worked um, when I was at Shot. I worked with Gavin Bryars very closely. Because when you when were you at Shot? 
So I was at shot from 2003 to 2011. So it was, I guess it was during the kind of the, the bit when sync and music for yeah. film, TV and advertising was very much on, on, the, the, on the rise yeah. and there was much more of a push. Yeah. Um, especially from publishers, but probably starting to be for much more from record labels yeah. as well. So yeah, so it kind of, I guess for most people, that's where you immediately associate, especially contemporary classical yeah. music with, okay, we're going to commission someone to write a score for our yeah. film. So was that, that was something that you were... Yeah, working? yeah, as I say, kind of, I mean, not, you know, not every day by any means, no, no. but there were certain composers whose music naturally lends itself to kind of to film scores and say kind of Gavin Bryce was the was the big one in part because his wife um, was a film director so he sort of had a natural synergy with the film world mm -hmm. and through that kind of he was always writing and he'd oh it's so funny he'd phone me up and say Sarah yeah so uh, I've just accepted this sort of film commission I'm just writing a film score and you know you'd slightly be tearing your hair out because you know they're huge huge mm -hmm. projects to do he was like, oh, don't worry, don't worry about it, you know, kind of, I'll fit it all in, and, you know, knowing what else he had to do. Because um, I think, kind of, as on the classical side, you're, you're kind of everything. You're the manager, you're the publicist, you're the publisher, so you're That's actually managing... That's the big managing, difference, isn't yeah. it, between so you're, you're, mainstream you're covering. stuff and classical stuff, is yeah. that you, you, your relationship in there, it's not quite as straightforward as, okay... You've got Universal Publishing, you've got yeah. Sony, Sony Records and all that sort of stuff. You're a little bit of everything. You're a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, kind of composers are beginning to have agents and some of the really successful composers like Mark Anthony Turnage and um, Matthias Pincher, you know, they've got, um, they've got agents um, and publishers work really closely and really well with agents, but mm -hmm. it's, it's really for those sort of international kind of blockbuster composers that have that scenario. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so if there's no agent, then the publisher the publisher fills that role, um, which makes it really exciting because it means you ha you have a really close relationship with your composers, mm -hmm. and you can look at it holistically. So there's never a sort of competing interest between you know wanting someone to be performing more or you know kind of all the different aspects of a composer's career. You've got that oversight. So in some mm. ways, it makes it really straightforward. How do you view, how do you look back on your time at the Music Publishers Association? I really enjoyed it. I think, yeah. I think as an organisation, it's completely brilliant and it, it... You were there through quite a turbulent yeah, it time. Was, it was, there was a lot of change there happening. There was a lot of change happening and I think sort of the, the, the running of the Trade Association was the most straightforward bit of it. Obviously, kind of MPA owns MCPS, and at the time, yeah, there was Impel, and it also owned PMLL. So, so they were all. So actually, kind of the MPA, the MPA group, you know, is more complicated. Yeah. Well, it's not complicated, but it's just it's more than a. It's more a, than just more one than company. just a train. Yeah. More than just a trade association. So what does I mean? Just b before moving on from there what does kind of a day a week at the MPA 
look like, or at least what like. did it look yeah. like? So there, I would say it broadly fell into sort of two two parts. Firstly, there was sort of there was looking after the members and dealing with the members. So a large part of that work was funneled through the committee structure. So there was the Pop Publishers Committee, there was the Clash Call Publishers Committee, um, there was the Library Publishers Committee, um, and of course the board and the sort of finance committee that sits alongside that. What so, are those sorts of inquiries? What does a publisher ask its trade body? Oh, they can ask you anything. <laughs> I mean, you can get asked all sorts of things around, you know, oh gosh, I remember there was one inquiry I had about Someone was asking me about the, the performing rights situation in Argentina. You know, I mean, there were okay. all sorts of questions that just sort of landed on your desk right. um, that you would invariably have to go off and hunt for the answer for because you didn't necessarily know. But yeah. the point of the trade association was that even if you didn't know yourself, you had the network and the ability to find that information for the member. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were lots of things that we were doing as well, like the trade missions to LA mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we'd do, we do, we started developing a program of, of um, sort of trade missions to Germany, to Holland um, and sort of across Europe. And so, yeah, so there was all the sort of the member activities and of course the famous MPA Christmas lunch. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm moving swiftly on, <laughs> uh, and and then sort of the the other thing that sort of when we talked to our members and when we surveyed our members, we found that actually it, the liaison with PRS was like a massive part of what they wanted the MPA to do, and you know inevitably for a huge organisation like PRS, there's all sorts of twists and turns and nooks and crannies as to how the organisation works, mm-hmm. and so through the MPA we had various sort of liaison committees um, some of which we ran some of which PRS ran and it was really a forum for enabling our members to have that really direct access to PRS and to enable them to ask the questions that they wanted to ask and you know sort of like why is it like this why can't the system do XYZ right and so we would work with the members and really effectively kind of lobbying lobbying PRS to say you know kind of the way your systems are constructed this just doesn't work for our publishers because of xyz so then we'd work with PRS to try and find a solution and really sort of drive that agenda through what from the experience you've had from both inside and outside of trade associations Mm. trade bodies um places like um like ism as well what do you think the perception of them is from the industry that they're there to, that they're there represent? to represent? What do you think? From, on, a, on a personal basis? On a personal yeah, basis. A personal I, think, I think people fall into two camps. They either get it and they love it, right. or they just think it's a total waste of time. Right. So I think it's quite a polar opinion. I think... I think... For some people, it's a way to to yield their power and influence. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. let's be clear yeah. about that. I don't um, think that's. I think that's fairly standard across all trade bodies, across all com- businesses like that. I'm There's, sure there are there are 
personal and professional agendas going on all over the place. So it's as, it's as much about managing that as it is yeah. anything else. Oh, yes. But I think the, the thing that always struck me about the MPA was that even though you knew in business members, you know, could be arch rivals, there was a genuine sense that like when they came into, when they were at the MPA, you know, sitting in a committee, all those differences were left at the door because actually, you know, that's through the MPA, that's where publishers need to be united because there are bigger battles to be to be fighting and that, you know, when you're trying to ensure that the labels aren't screwing you over, when you're trying to ensure that, um, you know, YouTube and Google aren't screwing you over, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of our, you know, our internal debates and discussions. Yeah. They're not irrelevant, but just in the grand scheme of things, they become less important. Yeah. You mentioned when we were talking about your time at Faber and Shot mm. that you started to understand kind of what a publisher is there for, what the role is. Mm. And then you spent your time at the Music Publishers Association. Do you th- did it change? while you were there when you saw kind of much a much wider range of yeah, publishers and absolutely. and what did you think publishers the publishing industry's role is in the modern music business i think for me moving to the mpa it made me realize when you're when you're sitting alongside universal and sony atv and Warner Chapel, you know, they are they are massively commercial companies. And so I guess for me, you know, coming from a classical background where don't get me wrong, you know, they they are they are commercial businesses, mm-hmm. but the the overriding factor that drives them as a business is the desire to support composers and sort of support the creators. Yeah. And I guess just when you're when you're at the MPA, it made me see the pressures that if you're you know if you're universal, the pressures that you're under from you know your owners, higher your shareholders, up higher yeah. up, and that the pressures that you that they were under to deliver commercial results, mm-hmm. I hadn't quite appreciated just how intense that was right. for those sorts of companies. Um, is there an equivalent now of that? Are you seeing how much pressure there is on some of the musician members in here? Is, are there musicians that you work with here that are under a lot of pressure to succeed and stuff by whoever they're working with above? I think there is, but I think it's more a question of kind of the musician drives themselves and that mm-hmm. actually, you know, they're... they're you know, they're so ambitious and they really want to do well and they want to have a successful career that they're pushing themselves to achieve, you know, as much as they can do and that, you know, they're pushing themselves forward. Mm-hmm. What's, what's coming up? What's ISM up to up until the end of the year and beyond? So our big thing is an event that we're putting on on the 4th of October called the Empowered Musician. Okay. So this is a one-day conference that we're holding at Milton Court, which is the it's the new performance space attached to um, Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Mm-hmm. 
and we're going there for a day and it's designed to to um as the name suggests empower musicians mm -hmm. so we're looking at those who are really sort of in the first five or so years of their career okay and it's going to be a day full of talks and music and it's we're going to be looking at sort of the nuts and bolts of contracts you know kind of what okay. you need to be looking out for we've got a big session on digital you know trends and you know what's happening how can you get yourself set up so that you can you know basically find your find your audience kind of find your way to communicate with your fans mm -hmm. um we've also got sessions on health and well-being um okay. making sure that musicians actually look after themselves definitely uh really important yep and then finally we've got a session just um where we've got some great musicians and artists coming along just to really talk about their journey and kind of how they started out in the industry kind of tips and tricks you know things to look out for things that really help them so trying to sort of get a sense of community going and so that's the big thing for learn. this year is this something that you're going to try and run annually i'm not going to commit to annually <laughs> but maybe uh so we did the first one we did uh two years ago right and we called that make music work and we had 300 people and it was like massively successful so we needed a year off but now we're back okay. um and this time we're you know we're thinking it's going to be about four to five hundred people cool. there so you know big event so yeah i mean we're certainly looking to sort of develop the program and you know mm -hmm. certainly maybe not every year but every couple of years we'll be doing a big event like that awesome and what's the best way for potential members to get in touch. Pick up the phone. With ISM. Go online. We're very happy to talk to people. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can, you can join online, but equally, um, you know, very happy to um, talk to people on the phone and sign up that way. It's all quite straightforward. It's all quite easy. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So that was Sarah Osborne. If you're interested in learning more about ISM, Incorporated Society of Musicians, do check them out. Their website is www.ism.org. There's plenty of different tiers and everything on there when it comes to membership, full membership from £176 per year, all the way down to a student membership, which is from only £15 a year. So they really do cater for any level of professional musicians. Once again, massive, massive thank you to Sarah for taking the time out to talk to me. I do hope to to talk to her again, maybe even in more detail about some of the events that they've put on, especially that one that is coming later on this month. As mentioned before, please do get in touch with the show. If you're interested in learning more about ISM, do ping me a message. I can always forward it to those at the companies. Get in touch with me at behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Behind the Business Pod, or find me on Twitter at Danny Champion. Until next time.
See you later.